Welcome to Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live happier, healthier, and more fulfilled lives. And now here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, welcome back to Lost or Found. So happy that you can join us. On today's episode, we're going to talk about dyslexia as it's so common, affecting 20% of the population and represents 80 to 90% of all those with learning disabilities. In California, summer has officially started. I didn't really anticipate how early my kids were going to get off school. So this week, we're going to do something I've never done before. Mom camp, where every day we go someplace together. Today, my kids want to go on rides at the Santa Cruz Boardwalk, even though we were there three days ago. I had to pull them away, and this time, they also want to include gambling at the arcade. I appreciate the sea breeze, even though I do wear my fresh-off-the-boat hat and sunglasses. If I were really going to do it, I would also carry a parasol, but I don't want to maximize my fresh-off-the-boatness everything in moderation. Also on the agenda, they want to go to the library. So funny, they actually chose this. I like this idea, curling up in a cool place with a book. Then we're going to Raging Waters, which is a water park a city away. I can barely swim. And then the movies. Another issue between Rose and William will be agreeing on the movie some pre-agreements prior to the agreement. My kids go to parochial school. It was a choice that we made during the pandemic for our sanity as the school was open. And although we're practicing Catholics, we don't agree with everything the Catholic Church says or does. And we have really come to love our little school as it's such a supportive and loving environment for our children and it's so culturally diverse. I've never seen my kids happier to go to school or sad when summer starts. Seriously, I hated going to school. And usually at the end of the year, they discuss a program called Family Life for two days. I could tell that William was really frustrated over the past two days. There were some heavy discussions in class with disagreements. And in William's fourth grade class, they brought up abortion, and the views were not in line with that of our families. We openly discuss issues and news at home because my husband is an avid reader, and he's always up to date with the news, including the kids in the discussion. And during one of these days, William wrote on a sticky note in class, the freaking word of the Lord and he crumbled it up and put it into the garbage. But then some girls dug through the garbage and took out his sticky note, unfurled it, and read it. Seriously, how can you anticipate that other people will go through the garbage? But when they unfurled the sticky note and read the writing, they thought it said, the fucking word of the Lord. Then the witch hunt began. The only one in class with blue sticky notes was William. William vehemently denied it. The sticky note went up to the teacher. The teacher asked who wrote this. 
And in my opinion, I think she already knew. After a year of looking at children's handwriting, how do you generally not recognize? And he decided to resume looking for the culprit the next morning. Of course, William came home all concerned. He wrote the freaking word of the Lord, and it turned into major drama. He knew that kids in his class dug through the garbage, but he momentarily forgot. That night, it bothered him so much, we had a family discussion about what happened and whether or not he should confess. He didn't want someone else to be blamed. His strategy was that if someone else were to be blamed, he would step up. But it kept on bothering him. He was ruminating, asking me multiple times if he should fess up and apologize. I told him, if it's bothering you that much, if I were you, I would. His take on what I said was because I was talking about me and not him that he won't. My husband thought what he did was dumb as ass, considering he knew kids in his class went through the garbage. And the more I thought about this, I felt William shouldn't apologize. He can fess up, but he should not apologize. Why should he apologize? He had a thought in his head. He wrote it on a piece of paper for him, which is socially acceptable, and he threw it in the garbage. His thought was not meant for anyone but him. But then others intervened. So William went to school the next day. And because they didn't bring up the incident, he didn't say anything. He played foursquare with his buddies and not-so-buddies and got into fights about what is what in the game of foursquare. And on today's show, we have Judy Robinson to talk about dyslexia. Judy is a retired educator who specializes in reading and autism spectrum disorders. She lives in Carlisle, Massachusetts, and continues learning about learning and enjoying her time with family and grandchildren. She is also an avid mystery reader. Hello, Judy. Welcome to Lost or Found. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for inviting me. (laughs) And um, as we begin, can you tell our listeners about yourself? Well, I'm an educator, and I work primarily in grades K to 8. I grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts, and I first became interested in education when I was, I think, a middle school student, and I volunteered at a camp for disabled kids, and it opened my eyes up to a whole new world. When I moved to college, I did volunteer work and then decided I wanted to be a special educator. And after my master's degree, I began working with children with primarily behavioral needs. And the interesting thing was that um, as I was working with kids who were said to have emotional disturbance, uh, it became apparent to me that some of these behavioral issues were the result of learning problems. And from there, I moved on to really being uh, interested in learning how children uh, learn to read. Oh, wonderful. That's a really powerful story. I didn't realize it started so young for you, too. Oh, you didn't. (laughs) What I can learn through a podcast. And as we discuss dyslexia today, can you describe dyslexia? 
for our listeners? Certainly, I sure can. Um, I think the simplest definition is simply that uh, dyslexia is a learning disability in reading, and um, which it, it truly is. Uh, it's very common. The estimates range, from what I can see, uh, from between 10 to 30% of the population has some level of dyslexia. And the disability really is on a spectrum. You can have a very mild problem all the way to a very, uh, very, very severe uh, difficulty in reading. Uh, One thing very interesting about dyslexia is that the children are at least um, of normal intelligence. They're not lazy, and dyslexia isn't helped if a parent says, parent or teacher says, uh, you really need to work a little bit harder because it really has nothing to do um, with that, with being lazy. Uh, Both boys and girls are equally affected. However, boys are referred more for evaluations, and perhaps that's due to um, behavioral difficulties. That's interesting. Yeah, that happened in the classroom. And a, a behavior problem is often the, it's usually the most important reason for a uh, teacher's request for an evaluation. Wow, you bring up so many like really profound points. I didn't realize dyslexia affected 10 to 30% of the population. It's amazing because we don't think of it in that form. Uh, so many of us have maybe tiny bits of dyslexia. Maybe not enough to really disable us, but enough to make us have to work harder when it, we have to learn to read. Yeah. I mean, throughout my life, I had issues with reading comprehension, yeah. like affecting my test scores as an Asian, you know. But I really do feel like that may have been an issue that was probably never diagnosed. Right. And I don't, it's only fairly recently that we have a really uh, good understanding of how things work. Um, before it was kind of a simplistic view on it. And, um, if students really are having decode, decoding issues um, and they're bright and everything else seems just fine, it usually is um, dyslexia. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that in little, uh, in, in boys more so than girls, that it does translate to behavioral issues. Yeah, I think that's society. That's Do you feel culture. like they're acting out their uh, issues? Well, sometimes, but sometimes it's more avoidance behavior mm-hmm. because they know that reading... Uh, will not be successful for them. So rather than deal with it, they uh, will avoid with a distraction. It doesn't have to be extreme behavior, but just kind of off-task mm-hmm. behavior that I would say is more of an avoidance reaction. Well, wow, that's a really w- interesting way to look at it, mm. too. I mean, you think of yourself what you avoid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Things that are... Or you shut down, exactly, right? Like some right, kids. Right, we see yeah. when it's difficult. Do you feel like there are different types of uh, dyslexia? Well, um, I think children can present in very different ways. And unless you really work individually with them, I think it would be very difficult to really put a a fine label on it. Um, I think in general, um, the common problems are are fairly consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the first thing that is significant from a parental point of view is when you know, your child goes to school. Everyone expects to learn how to read. That's a milestone of going to school. And, uh, you know, you say, Susie, she's she's so bright. Why can't she learn how to read? Mm-hmm. And that's the mystery because um, 
taking from a definition at the Yale Center for Reading and Creativity, um, it's really the unexpected difficulty in someone's being able to learn. It's not the child that you think may have a problem. Generally, it's a child who just seems just fine or even better than average. And it really takes away, dyslexia will take away an individual's ability to read quickly and with automaticity, which is, I think, what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And that's called fluency, when you can read quickly and understand it. And that's what, that's another piece of, of the pie, so to speak. But it's the one that maybe hangs on with people into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, uh, if you have dyslexia, some people have difficulty re- retrieving spoken words quickly and accurately, whether it be a list of numbers or random facts, just that quick retrieval seems that to processing the, to retrieve. the quickly information that you receive quickly and you have to retrieve it quickly. Mm-hmm. That can be a problem and um, in the speed of your working memory. Um, the important thing is that it doesn't dampen uh, creativity or ingenuity or any of all those other uh, very positive things. It's a very specific kind of problem. Mm-hmm. It seems like it, I thought it was just pertaining to reading, but it's really pertaining to any kind of processing of the word, even spoken or reading. Uh, not so much spoken. Okay. No, not if, you, if, if we were in mm-hmm. conversation or if the student, it, it's having to retrieve what they've heard immediately. Oh, okay. It's not the comprehension. Mm-hmm. If I, we could sit and talk and understand, it's if you gave me, especially if it's sort of... Um, unrelated, like a list of words mm-hmm. or numbers, things that you can't link together. Mm-hmm. That's what's hard to retrieve. It's not the comprehension. It's just the retrieval of that information. Mm-hmm. Which would come out as like memory then. Working memory. Mm-hmm. And that's the tricky part. It's not long-term. It's it's working memory. Um, it's sounding out and then retrieving it, integrating it, throwing it mm-hmm. back out quickly. So when I was doing my reading, they were describing that there are four types of like uh, dyslexia, like phonological, surface, rapid uh, processing, and double deficit. Do you think it's more of a, a little bit of each then for dyslexia? I do, and I think uh, the the nature of the problem really de- depends on the student, and you couldn't make a judgment like the the terms that you gave me are all to me aspects in the definition of uh, dyslexia. It's not. Mm-hmm. I don't see them. As separate, I see bits and pieces of this and that with students who do have, you know, con- a concern about dyslexia. Mm-hmm. But the spectrum can be wide, right? Wide, mm-hmm. very, very wide. Uh, it can be so tiny it might not even be picked up mm-hmm. because it's uh, not interfering with the learning. And then it can be devastating. Yeah. It's a wide range of where it can help, you know, can also um, affect you in terms of your reading comprehension. That's another. That's the most critical part. Mm-hmm. Um, and a parent could, you know, evaluate that by simply, does your student understand when you read them a story? Then you know it's not a language comprehension problem. It's their being able to read it and understand it mm-hmm. because they're making mistakes as they read. I was, um, something I found really interesting was that, you know, I read that early assessment and intervention um, really results in the best outcome. But 
how can I was wondering how that early intervention could happen, especially like in the child who's two or three, right? When their reading hasn't really begun. Right. I, I think uh, it's one of those problems that really, I think maybe the definition of early mm-hmm. is what's key. I think, unfortunately, a child sort of has to fail before a student, of a teacher, or even parents will even realize that there's a problem mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed. Uh, I think things are better now than they were a few years ago because of the way that schools have uh, taken the scientific knowledge about dyslexia, and it's been being more implemented in classroom reading programs, which we can talk about later. But I think normally I would say grades, uh, maybe maybe grade one, now that kindergarten, there's a lot of reading is done in, in kindergarten, but I would say grades one or two. Mm-hmm. As an educator and as a teacher, do you feel like teachers can see when a child has trouble with reading? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. A teacher will know. Yeah. yeah. And they're quick to act on that. And, uh, you know, in, uh, in accordance with the reading and in, in you're talking about developing skills, students with dyslexia will have trouble with spelling mm-hmm. because they just don't, can't remember the sequence of the letters. Uh, this will affect their written work and their writing. And because um, we're talking about, you know, learning uh, letter sounds and being able to retrieve them quickly, it's a skill kind of like learning your math facts. Mm-hmm. So you might see a problem in that too. That automatic memory that when you don't have difficulty with it, it seems so easy, mm-hmm. but it isn't. You know, we uh, we take that kind of for granted when we don't have a problem with it. But those are the issues that um, really are front and center for a child with dyslexia. Yeah, I mean, if it affects 10 to 30 percent of our population, I mean, it's the same with children. Right. There's a huge exactly. percentage who so have this a problem. lot of children. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um. And sometimes dyslexia goes undiagnosed for years and it's not recognized until early adulthood. Why do you think that happens, or how does that happen? Um, I think probably each case has its own story. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps it could be someone like you, Michelle, who did very well in school, in medical school, and everything else. And maybe there, there wasn't a label for it. Maybe your teachers felt you were such a high achiever that... Um, why would they ever refer you for a reading evaluation? Because yeah. clearly... You can read. I tutored a student who was a senior in high school, and she had been spending, she was very, very bright, but she had been spending about four to five hours a night on her homework. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't make sense, you know. Um, She understood everything, but she she just couldn't do all that work. And with an evaluation, it found she, she had dyslexia. And I started tutoring her about four days a week, mm-hmm. and it and it made a, a significant difference. But it's um, something that will not go away. So you, there are techniques that a dyslexic person would hopefully learn in childhood and going through, you know, elementary and secondary school. But then it's something you have to take with you through life. Um, little techniques that are very simple, but they do make a tremendous difference. I think that's really wonderful that it's known that there's techniques, you know, to 
to live with this condition. Well, as you say about the numbers, achieve, yeah. think of how many people are living with it. And how many people have, may have no idea. Exactly. You know, exactly. something that as you were talking that, you know, a memory that came up was that when I was younger, like second, third, fourth grade, something that I had a really difficult time with was actually reading aloud. Mm. That's that's a, yeah. That's one of the so tricks. difficult for me. <laughs> and I read a lot I felt like but I had such a hard time no, reading aloud. Right. That is something um rehearsal is a strategy for mm -hmm. dyslexia that um anything you're going to read aloud you need to do it ahead of time and read it read it as if you were practicing to hit a baseball. Mm -hmm. It's that rehearsal uh getting getting the information and getting sort of thinking about motor memory uh, into your system so it's, it becomes a part of you and that can, it's not going to go away, but it will uh, get you through it and you can be successful. Mm -hmm. Judy, what are some of the um, causes of dyslexia? Are there any? Well, uh, they think there may be a genetic predisposition to, to dyslexia and then it tends to run in families. Again, it can you know, run the gamut, but because there's such a large percentage of people with dyslexia, you know, I don't know if that's a really great uh, correlation. I think the largest consistency they find is a difficulty with phonological processing, which essentially is uh, learning sounds for letters. Mm -hmm. um, and th those skills are, are typically weak and uh, students who have uh, dyslexia, even when they're in kindergarten. However, you can't assume that there that is a true weakness unless you know about educationally what they've been exposed to and what they've been taught. Otherwise, you could get kind of a false impression about you know what is going on. Maybe they just need a little bit of extra instruction mm -hmm. without having a significant uh, uh, disability. The larger issue seems to be um, when this phonological awareness is uh, paired with processing speed. Um, so if your letter sound association is not automatic, like if you see the word cat and you can go k at, mm -hmm. okay, so you've got that far, but then you have to look at that word and then you have to take those three sounds and put them together. So it means when you're reaching the T sound that you have to go back through your using your working memory to get the K at. Mm -hmm. And some people process that um, system processes much quicker than others. And if your system is a little slower, not deficient by any means, not to the point where it would be called a disability, but if it's a little weaker maybe than some of your other skills, it's very hard to hold on to those sounds. Mm -hmm. And they may have to review with it, sound it out again, and then, but it slows you down. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to read quickly, it's easy to substitute a letter. You could make cat into cap. You could do all kinds of different uh small errors that could result in major comprehension errors, though. And that's why it's really significant. 
And is that why sometimes with dyslexia, people read the word backwards because of the working memory? They remember the T sound first? It could be. I've never heard Mm -hmm. that mentioned. Uh, I know reversing letters is not a giveaway for dyslexia Mm -hmm. because so much of that is just developmental. Mm -hmm. But it could be. I I just don't know. The one other thing that, you know, recent developments in uh, kind of brain imaging show some differences between those with dyslexia and those without. Um, But the good news is that it's also been shown through um, brain scans that our brains can change Mm -hmm. and that a dyslexic with remediation will actually show some differences in the scans. So I think that's really very positive. Like it could help to make those areas of the brain more robust through techniques and repeated... And I think uh, from my perspective as an educator and as a parent too, um, that parents need to remember that um, dyslexia is a true learning disability, but it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse not to read. It's not an excuse to say it's too hard. It can be dealt with. I love that. I mean, it's definitely, it's unfortunate to like have a problem at any age, but isn't that the reality of life sometimes? And to learn to work through it, work with it, that it doesn't have to be the end all. But I love that it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. And children really need to be empowered um, to realize that. Uh, One of the larger issues with dyslexia is kids um, having some emotional fallout just because of their dyslexia. And I found that um, it's very important that kids understand, or students of all ages really understand what's going on and why why they're having this issue and that they can overcome it because so much of it, um, the child is afraid that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, or in more more general term is that they're, you know, stupid, but they need to understand what, what's going on and what can be done to help and that they are empowered to make this happen with, with the support of adults in their lives. I think you really bring up a beautiful point because at any age, and I think even more so in children, we blame ourselves for the things that go wrong and you don't really know what goes on right. in the mind right. of a child. No. You know, They may blame themselves for not being able to read and it may translate into right. other kinds of behaviors. Definitely. But I, I love what you say with the right resources, they can learn another way. Yes. Yes. You're teaching another way to do a task that, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we take for granted. If, if we're good readers. It's kind of like that resilience component. You oh, know? it is. You know, and you think of an adult. <laughs> that road didn't work for you. No, you right. Know? And you think of an adult who, you know, a non-disabled person who was in an auto accident and now they're disabled. Um, you have to learn to, to work with what you have. And in, in the case of dyslexia, there are proven techniques now that do have good results. And before we get there, um, I just wanted to quickly ask you, you mentioned some, you know, like, the difficulty reading or sometimes, you know, the retrieval of the words. What are some other early signs of dyslexia? Uh, I have seen some comments about children who have difficulty rhyming words that may be, I think these are all maybes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think I would be more concerned if my child didn't comprehend a story that I had read them. Mm -hmm. Um, That wouldn't have anything to do with dyslexia, but it would significantly 
uh, signify a significant language delay, and that would be much more um, all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would think parents would uh, raise a flag, and hopefully a pediatrician would ask questions also. Um, I think you need to um, expose the kids to the alphabet and um, do all the things that uh, you know how to do. Uh, in terms of dyslexia, you're going to maybe have to wait a little bit longer than you'd like. Mm-hmm. When uh, So when the problem becomes obvious. Yes, I think, I, mm-hmm. I don't know how you would anticipate yeah. it, unless um, I know in my own case, there's been a, some dyslexia in the family, so I'm on the alert. Yeah. Um, I look, I see, you know, I, I think that would be a wise course of action. And I really admire what you said before. Failure is not the end all. No. Failure is a new beginning. If you can see it that way, it's yeah. kind of to raise the alarm that that way is not working for you. What other way can be found? And it's important to frame it that way. Yeah. And uh, I think, it, you know, working on this problem, you work as a team and the child is the essential component. I was reading, and something that I found interesting in reading for this um, topic was that children with dyslexia, I read, are at higher risk for ADHD, like behavioral issues. Could that be an early sign too, or do you think that's false? Um, I personally, um, I, I, I guess I could sign on to the May part. I have not seen that many students with AD. HD with dyslexia, I've seen all kinds, um, mm. but predominantly no, from my experience. And in reviewing research for this uh, interview, um, I really couldn't see a direct correlation in, in what had been published recently, but I'm not an expert. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And dyslexia can lead to a number of problems, including trouble learning, like you mentioned. Because reading is such a basic skill in all different um, other school subjects. Um, Social problems, too, which I found really interesting, that dyslexia may lead to low self-esteem, behavior problems, which you mentioned, but also anxiety, aggression, and withdrawal from friends. Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be true? It can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yes, well, uh, children are very, they equate reading with intelligence, uh, young children, and when that isn't happening for them and they look around and see everyone else reading, um, I think it can become a huge uh, burden because they feel as if they're, they really have, there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And um, it can, with, if not intervened properly, um, turn into, become a, a larger problem with the behavioral things that we've already discussed. And, um, in the past, there were some states that kind of projected their um, incarceration rates based on reading failures. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a direct correlation between that, but there's certainly, um, you know, it, it is an important factor in child development. I think that's a really um, profound point that you bring up because. It's kind of like addressing like the root source of the problem. It's right. not the behavior that was the problem. No. That if reading is actually the problem. If it is in that yes. case, yeah. And if there if it's so common, mm. you know, I feel like that's for a young child, that's probably the one of the first areas that should be looked at first then. Well, it's interesting because you know, with when 
kids hit the lower elementary grades, the task is to learn how to read. But by third and fourth grade, it switches over to reading to learn. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to read to learn, you know, your science, social studies, all of the other um, subjects that are required. Judy, what are the some of the first steps in learning to read then? I think one really helpful thing is we can, if you can at all, put yourself back into that position as a first grader or kindergarten student who's presented with that first word that you you need to learn how to read. And I think from my perspective, I think every word is a puzzle the first time you see it. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know what it is, whether it be cat or supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's a new word. How do you get there? How do you get that word? How, do you have any recollection of how you learned to read? Um, I feel like I probably like pretended a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good skill to have. <laughs> I was a good pretender yes. until I made it. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us do that. I remember pictures up around the ceilings of the wall with the letters and maybe a picture of a cat or a dog or some kind of familiar object. I feel like memory was very huge for me yeah, too. Right. And uh, at the time I thought I was learning phonics, but I don't think I really was. I think I was just learning letter identification. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of uh, a, a different sort of approach. Um, we What we have to do now, and a lot of this is, in, I see with one of my grandchildren, it's incorporated into the kindergarten program. And um, basically, uh, what, we're t- what our goal is, everyone used to say that when you couldn't teach English, there were no patterns. You know, English is so difficult to learn. Well, that's really just not true. There are patterns. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do now is uh, to have students teach students a way or a system to conquer a word, to just read it if it's a one-syllable word, like cat, or break it down into its meaningful parts, which we would call each meaningful part a syllable. Mm-hmm. So any... Uh, you know, downtown, whatever it might be, just techniques for how to take that unknowable word, break it down in such a way that you can decode it, read it, and practice that, those patterns enough to make those patterns automatic. Um, Also, there are words that don't follow the rules in English, not a whole lot, but there are some. uh, like, Like what? Like wild. Mm-hmm. If we were, that is what's called a closed syllable. And a closed syllable, which is a consonant on either end, should have a short vowel sound. Mm-hmm. But what about wild? Mm-hmm. I hear a long I. I hear I. So that's a rule breaker. Um, we have a lot of words, like not a whole lot of words, but quite a few. And then we have words that we really can't sound out. High frequency, high frequency words that are not sound outable, like the, mm-hmm. said. Words that are very frequent, especially like in a first reader, Bob said. Mm-hmm. So the child is going to see that. And at my grandson's school, those are called heart words. Mm-hmm. And we have to learn them by heart. <laughs> That's a good one. Isn't that a good one? Yeah. Um, to be really honest with what yeah, kind of word it is. What kind of word? You just have, just have to learn it by heart. So all these techniques are kind of, you know, not earth shattering, mm-hmm. but they work. And is it like part memory too then? 
it is, but you're teaching patterns to look for. You're not having a student sound out each and every letter. You learn a unit. Like a PH sound too. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's, well, you would learn that as P, as sounding like a F. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in the initial. That combination. Yeah. You learn, you learn it to the point of automaticity. Now, some people don't need to hear it very often and they'll just remember that what the sound is or the pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, Others need more repetition. And those that need the most repetition would be the most dyslexic. But some people, all they need are these to learn the basic patterns. Mm -hmm. And then they're good to go. Is reading addressed like this in most schools? I don't know. I think um, it it would be on a remedial basis. Mm -hmm. I think initially it would be, you would not make it incredibly remedial because the whole class would not need the remediation. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think, a balance of getting it to the point where you're presenting enough for the general, Mm -hmm. for the majority of the students, and then a good teacher will see who's having difficulty and, and, you know, deal with it, whether it be asking for assistance from someone else mm-hmm. or maybe the reading specialist. But I think it's the key is the awareness of the uh, educational personnel around your child to make sure that they're getting what they need. Mm-hmm. And, to, and also to, um, you know, ask for help when they need it. And I think what happens with these learning the patterns, you practice the patterns, it's repetitive. Again, it's that rehearsal. It's that trying to hit that baseball. It's a motor memory of the whole thing. It's pure practice, not brain science, but it's pure practice. And eventually that word will become an immediate sight word. They won't have to go, they'll look at it, see it, say it. Mm -hmm. That's the goal to get past that Sounding out, putting those sounds together, and then saying the word. Once you get it, you've got it. And then you can apply that to other words that fit that CAT pattern. Mm -hmm. You just automatically know what you're doing. So it's really teaching skills. For a school that's functioning well, do you need a diagnosis before you see the reading specialist? Or is it once you have trouble? Well, it depends. I think most schools now have a... A general reading specialist that mm-hmm. consults to teachers and also uh, sees students. I think there uh, the evaluation of the student is key because if a student um, just needs a little extra, that's often called response to intervention, which is kind of a new technique to um, handle problems quickly and immediately. And that would be done. Uh, I think that each school system would have their own systems, but um, it's designed to be quick and to get a, an idea of really what's going on instead of waiting for a problem to become big. Mm-hmm. But if a student is determined to maybe have larger issues, then they might be uh, referred for an educational evaluation. Um, if they have a disability, they might qualify for a 504 plan um, which provides accommodations, maybe, um, you know, books on tape. You have to have a disability in order to get that. 
And then if you have um, a more significant disability, it affects, if the disability affects your performance and your reading more in a, you know, in a larger way, then you may have an individualized educational plan, which provides for special instruction from a special educator. Within the school or within outside the school, of the school? Within mm-hmm. the school. So there are different levels. Mm-hmm. And this is in response to um, really when a, there was a concern about a student, the only option was the IEP process, mm-hmm. which means getting a signature from the parents, I believe it's 60 days for an evaluation to be completed. Um, and it was slow. Mm-hmm. But now the... Uh, Intent is to have uh, problems looked at quickly, and hopefully decisions can be made that will enhance the student. Yeah. My concern is that sometimes in California, it seems like a lot of schools don't have reading specialists. Uh, Yes. Well, that may be something you could, you know, parents can act, uh, request the schools, and also really put the pressure on the uh, school committee. I, I don't know the structure of how schools work in California and Massachusetts. They're, each town has a school committee mm-hmm. and you can lobby them directly for, you know, concerns. Um, but I think it's something, um, even if they have to have an itinerant uh, reading specialist, you know, I would think they would, uh, it would be certainly advantageous to have an expert yeah. you know, in the school. Um, parents can also um, take their children out for an outside evaluation, mm-hmm. but that's very expensive and mm-hmm. not covered by insurance usually. So testing and evaluation, someone, so a mother was saying that it, it took her t- almost two-thirds of the school year. Is that normal? Um, I would have to know more details. To mm-hmm. me, that seems like a long time, but, you know, sometimes if they, uh, I, I just wouldn't want to guess on that because mm-hmm. I know... Um, Every situation is unique, and sometimes there are reasons why evaluations are extended. If there's all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, that wouldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't answer. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Oh no! If uh, support is not provided through the school, what does outside support look like? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, if a student is in a private school, mm-hmm. um, and he qualifies for an IEP, which mm-hmm. would be the specialized instruction, then normally the uh, parent would be, uh, could take that student to his uh, neighborhood school mm-hmm. to receive that instruction. But it would typically be done after school hours or early in the morning to fit in with the schedules of both the public and the private school. Is it like, how often does it typically happen? It depends on the need. Oh, it depends on the need. It all depends on the need. Yeah. Yeah. For that student that you had mentioned earlier who where she was getting privately tutored, four times a week sounds great, but that seems like almost impossible in the public setting, right? She was paying for it privately. Yeah. Yeah. It it is it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. But the students' reading levels were at a 11th grade level. She just couldn't do the volume. It was mm-hmm. the time that she couldn't do. She could read, mm-hmm. but not quickly and with comprehension. So the fluency was her problem, really. It wasn't the decoding. 
So that's what brighter kids can do. Yeah, I would imagine that many kids are in that category. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. How do you, how would you like to see, uh, you know, the teaching of reading change for most schools or for children? I guess I would like to see more uh, universal design strategies incorporated into a school for everyone. Um, universal design is something I got very interested in working with um, kids with all sorts of disabilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really having things around that help everyone, sort of like, you know, curb cuts in the sidewalk. It's a lot easier to go down a slanted mm-hmm. pavement than down that, you know, things that are good for everyone. I think if, when that's incorporated, the everyone will benefit. I think that sounds like a wonderful idea because my concern with dyslexia is that you know, towns that have more may do better than the towns where funding is significantly less. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, And knowing what the social consequences could be if dyslexia is not identified nor helped. Yeah, well, I think think there are things to, you know, the parents are the main line of defense. The school is is also, I really, um, uh, I, I look at, these issues from two points of view, as a teacher's perspective and as a parent. Um, we really have to be a team. Uh, the teacher is not out to make you unhappy. And the teacher needs to know the parent is just simply worried about, you know, the most precious thing in their life. Um, no one is out. No one has evil intent uh, or wants to be disagreeable, but you really have to work together and, um, that really was the key to, to success um, in my different situations. Um, there are also strategies that people could do at home, parents could help their kids with, even if they don't have a formal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main things, well, for me, I think, thinking about early education, the, the most important thing is language and exposure to language. Um, more you can uh, provide your child with that, um, you know, like reading, reading to them? reading to them. But if you reach a point where they're getting older, they still need language, even if their reading level does not accommodate the books that they might like to read. Mm-hmm. And just doing a little search, um, I went to a couple of local libraries and popular books like Dragons Love Tacos. You can get it as an ebook. You can get it as a audio just with to follow along with the book um there are all kinds of ways that you can go you know the library is free that you can enrich their language but also give them some independence at with dyslexia with well with life uh students need to learn how to be independent and i think that's uh, one good way to do it is um but yet keeping that emphasis on literature, you, mm-hmm. language, words, vocabulary, that's really the greatest key to success, you know, in school is just even having that vocabulary, helping with your thinking. Um, it's very, very important and it can't do it enough. Um, with older people, there's some great um, resources. One of the biggest game changer has been the use of computers and technology, Mm -hmm. because then it gives everyone access to books. 
um, no matter what, no matter what your situation. Um, one of the biggest things for adults, and it's free, it's called Project Gutenberg, and it's um, people volunteer. Books that have extended past their copyright date are all free uh, online, and you can download them and read them. They will read to you. You know, it's text-to-speech technology, and that's a great, if you want to catch up on the classics, mm-hmm. you can go to Project Gut- Gutenberg. If your child has um, been diagnosed with a reading disability and it's significant enough, there is also a, a national um, thing called Bookshare. And with IDEA, they um, mandated that, I forget the exact date, when that every textbook, every book published in the U.S. had to have a digital copy residing in this repository somewhere. Mm-hmm. So if you are if you need it, if you can't read your science book and you have a reading disability, you have school will help you fill out a form and you send it in and you can access the book. So again, reading is a disability. It's not an excuse. You can still do your work, but you're doing it in a different format. And this whole area... It was really what uh, my before I retired. This was my prime area. You know, I digitized textbooks for my school, mm-hmm. so no one had an excuse. Is it uploading, or is it also kind of like audio book too? I think the books are in all forms. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! But they're limited, but but for by copyright rules. Mm-hmm. So you really have to fit the bill to get the book, to get the approval to get the book. Um, and I imagine through the publisher, you, if you wanted to do it privately, maybe you could do some of the arrangement. But Bookshare has, it's very easy to operate, very easy to use, but everyone can access it. I don't know exactly how it's working now because I know many schools are just using digital books. So maybe you can just access it automatically once a school has a license. That I'm not sure about those details, but there are many ways to, mm-hmm. or uh, even playing an audio book if you don't have right. time to read. Exactly, you know, and you could listen. Yeah, yeah, as a family, right. And another technique for reading is, um, you know, if you had a long essay to read it, particularly if it's expository factual material. Mm-hmm. One technique is just to read the first paragraph, the introduction, read the last paragraph, the conclusion, which kind of sums it all up, and then just you know, skim the middle and highlight the couple of high spots. <laughs> so there are tricks you can do to, you know, to accommodate. And they're, that's why they're called accommodations. Yeah, I'm laughing. Make it easier. Is that what you did? <laughs> no, no, I'm laughing because I was never able to do that, oh. actually. <laughs> it, like, still didn't make sense to yeah. me, but, but come, that's old funny. memories, yeah. It's yeah. funny. And I know we all have memories like that. Other things are, you know, making flashcards, good old-fashioned strategies. Uh, like putting a word on there? Putting a word and maybe a picture on the other side so that mm-hmm. the child can look at it independently and identify it. I used to make very short sentences with maybe three or four words, but with the word in it, <clears throat> so that it could be decoded in context, mm-hmm. you know, that there would be some hints. Math facts could be on flashcards. Also, any facts, historical facts, you know, Lexington and Concord, you know, 1775, mm-hmm. if you, whatever you had to remember, um, breaking down content units to one section at a time rather than trying to do the whole assignment. 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, real planning. So I think for, for dyslexic students, there really isn't a homework night off. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're caught up to date in social studies, you read the start of the next chapter because that time is always going to be an issue. <clears throat> and that consistency. Right. That just have it. Knowing that that's what one needs to do. Rehearse what we already talked about, rehearsing mm-hmm. oral reports, mm-hmm. making sure that you know it, um, highlighting. Don't you feel like everyone needs to do that one? <laughs> well, that's the thing of it. Everyone needs to do all of them. Yeah. But we all shortchange. Or a lot of times we want to take the easy way, but what if that easy way doesn't really help us at all? If it doesn't work. Yeah, it's really yeah. always, unfortunately, the long way. It is it in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Other things are, you know, dictating, using speech to text um, writing programs. Mm. So when you're doing your composition, you you dictate it and go through it. And then you, of course, the next step is you have to listen to it and listen for your errors. Mm-hmm. And you have to almost like read it to review it. Yeah. First you would listen though. Okay. And then you hear, you're going to work on your other modalities. Mm-hmm. Listen to it. And if it doesn't sound right, you know, you have to fix it. Mm-hmm. And then you would go back. It, it'd be a, The process is extended, you know. Do you need special programs for that or is it just like it's on a, Apple? I think you, I, I think Apple does have a reading program. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it has. I think it would have dictation. I'd have to. Tr- I'd have to try. I know it does have a reading program. You would think in this day and age that like a you, there could be like a universal reading program with Should like be. the availability of technology to help with that. Right. That's right. like one good way that technology could exactly. contribute. You know. Well, it makes a real uh, a very big difference. So even with the, um, you know, state uh, competency exams, um, you can use assistive technology. Um, which is considerable advance. It's it's a it's a fair response to a disability. Some p- other parents may feel it's um, too much assistance, but if a child really is language disabled, then and they have no way ex- of expressing their knowledge, there has to be another way for them to do it. That is fair. So I think it's a very fluid system. Uh, I think the research on dyslexia keeps expanding, and the more information we get, the more effective the the programs will be. Um, right now, you know, there are evidence-based programs that uh, have proven they do work, mm-hmm. and I think uh, that's great to have them standardized and say, okay, we're going to do this because we know it's worked in Nebraska, Florida, you know, Oregon. Let's do it. And it's not just a whimsical, thrown-together approach to to remediation. So, And I think the Internet helps because you can access so much. Those programs. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here, Judy. You're welcome, Michelle. My mother-in-law, who is so knowledgeable and educated. I hope I uh, didn't present too much. I loved it. And I loved what you were saying. You know, it's not an excuse not to read. It isn't. It's a a reason to continue to work and continue to try like we all need to do. And we all know how important it is. And it can be so impactful. And I love 
that you described that, you know? Uh, thank you. And thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Michelle. I'm so glad that I was here. One more thing I forgot to add. I'd like to have your listeners know that I've had many students who are profoundly disabled who went off to college and were madly successful with college scholarships and all. And uh, remember, it's not an excuse. It's just a, you just have to learn to work twice as hard. I love that. That is so profound. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. Follow Michelle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're loving the podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and leave us a great review. See you next time.